Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1 as we continue our study of the book of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8 is our passage today, and that passage can be found on page 877. If you are using a church Bible, page 877. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, and, and as you're turning there, this is uh, both Darwin's and Darcy's last Sunday with us. After 17 years uh, for Darwin and, and 10 for Darcy in, in service to our church family, uh, Darwin's retiring and relocating to Florida with Tammy uh, to be nearer uh, to family in a new home. And for the past 17 years, honestly, we have never had to worry about anything concerning the campus because Darwin would repair uh, build, replace, paint, renovate, clean, everything. We, we call him Captain America around here. We were joking around at lunch this past week about how when he leaves, uh, we won't even know how to set up the chairs anymore. But that is how much Darwin has had his hands in everything. And over the last 17 years, he has really poured out blood, sweat, tears in making sure our campus is in good and working order for worship. You know, Tammy will often be found doing the exact same thing right next to Darwin. You might drive by and see them both in the parking lot cutting trees and things like that. And she's never been on staff, but she just serves that much. She, she's actually one of the very first ones to reach out to Laura when our family came into the church, always asking us about our families and our parents and, and how they're doing it when not, which shows uh, just the kind of care that she has in her heart. And so please, when you see Darwin and Tammy, uh, they have both served our church in great ways that often go unnoticed, never really cared that they did go unnoticed. Uh, when, you, when you see them, wish them aloha and, and, and appreciate them as they depart. You know, Darcy, our children's ministry director for the past 10 years, is getting married. She's moving to Mililani, where she will be with her new husband, Ron, and worshiping at Island Grace, which is a fantastic church, and that's where they will have a home very soon. Ron, um, as I get to know him more and more, godly and faithful man, I've been so encouraged by him. Uh, he's here today um, and has been with us frequently over the last several months, really holding Darcy's hand in this big transition for her, and, and that just further convinces uh, the people who do love her of Ron's uh, genuine care and love for her, but for Darcy, her impact on so many of our children uh, through so many of our young adults uh, who have all come closer to Jesus because of her discipleship of them. And in more ways, I think we're going to see the fruit of that in the coming years uh, because of the seeds planted by her own hand. Um, so much ministry is accomplished here because of her wise input and friendship and her knowledge of, of you guys, the congregation. Uh, but please, when you see Darcy, actually do not talk to her at all. <laughs> She'll weep, uh, ignore her, or just pretend like this is just any other Sunday. She doesn't want any acknowledgement of the fact that this is her last one. That's not a joke, actually. I'm sure she'll visit from time to time, but uh, we are thankful to our kind God for the gift of both of them on staff, for the three of you. Uh, we are going to miss you dearly. And with that being said, uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, but let us pray together before we uh, look at our text. Our Father, you truly are the giver of all good gifts, and, and you have blessed our church uh, for many years with faithful servants who love you and love this gathering, this church family. Please bless the Taylors and the Corpuses and their future plans and ministries. Would you uh, make them even more faithful and more fruitful in the years to come? Please encourage our people to step in and fill in the gaps as they leave uh, what they leave behind, and, and that, that you would raise even more people who love our church and love you like they have. Um, you're so good to us, God. 
and we see it in very tangible ways. You deserve all worship and praise. And as we turn to your word now, please bless us in just an accurate, uh, clear, and powerful understanding of it. Uh, would you convict our hearts only uh, like the Spirit can? Convict us of the truth of it, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom which is to come. May all of that, make all the things on earth grow very strangely dim by comparison. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, the kingdom of God that Jesus has been teaching us about is not like the kingdoms of the world. There is no tangible throne on earth, no castle, no royal court, no country, and our king is not even physically present with us. The kingdom here uh, initially is here in the recognition of and the affection for our Lord Jesus Christ within the hearts of those who bend the knee to him and wait for his inevitable return and for the fullness of the kingdom when it will be made obvious as lightning in the sky is obvious. There's going to be no denying it. But I think that one of the greatest difficulties within the Christian life really is is simply time as we do wait for the kingdom to come. And of course, there's other difficulties in the Christian life, uh, battles we have with sin in the heart, coming to terms with things that need to change, and painful realizations at that. There are relational difficulties and friction, even in our most intimate of unions, of marriage and family. There, there's this ongoing experience of feeling our own bodies being broken down in a world of cancers and illnesses and dementia, uh, which some of you are going through or caring for those who are going through it. There are ministry discouragements and whatnot, even ones we thought were close to God prove that they're actually not. I, I mean, there's a variety of difficulties in the Christian faith, but, but all of that, I think, would feel a lot lighter to us if we knew that Jesus were returning soon. But it can be that because the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' return has, has been so long, it can almost seem like he's not ever going to come back at all. And then we make our own year and don't look there. And we set up our own little kingdoms as if this is ultimate instead of living in anticipation of his greater one. And we're to remember, uh, thus the warning of Lot's wife, that with salvation right in front of her, her heart was still back in Sodom. So that believers with the kingdom of God right in front of us, our hearts might not be found in the world nor the world within our hearts. Because when the kingdom does come in its fullness, it will be swift and many are going to be unprepared for it. This is what Jesus has been teaching us in the passage previous. But, but that period of time between that first and second coming, the length of that can be one of the greatest struggles for the believer in this momentary life. The seeming delay of it can test us, can try us, can, can weary us, especially when we're carrying our own crosses in pursuit of Jesus. And so Jesus' teaching on the kingdom requires some kind of immediate application, which is found in our passage this morning. How his coming kingdom relates to our prayer life and persistence and perseverance and how our readiness for the kingdom and our watchfulness of it is intimately tied to how we pray and what it is that we truly believe. Prayer at the end of the day is a faith issue. We read in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There are twin truths here in this verse, that believers ought always to pray and that we will not always want to pray. That kingdom come, that will be done is the second line of the Lord's prayer. 
Uh, we're to be a people always praying for the coming kingdom. And at the same time, it's easy to lose heart for that kingdom and therefore lose prayer. Jesus knows that prayer is both essential and difficult. And I think there's a comfort here uh, because we have a Savior who understands both of these twin truths. He, he knows us. He knows how easy it is for each of us to lose heart, to lose heart meaning to, to lose motivation, to lose enthusiasm, to be discouraged. I mean, this is a very real threat and a common threat between Jesus' first and second coming. And then when we do lose heart, we don't pray. That's almost the last thing we do. But when we do pray, we don't lose heart. Uh, our prayer lives are intertwined with how much our hearts are there or a lack thereof with how much our hearts are here. And, and some of us this morning might be right there that your heart is, for the kingdom is so minimal and the things in your lives are so discouraging that hope is lost. Maybe you can't even mouth words to God anymore. And there's no warmth of feeling. Instead, there's this feeling of pointlessness. And, and you feel like you're alone in that experience. But Jesus here kind of predicts that experience. And he wants us to come to him in prayer and to reset our hearts on the kingdom which is to come and that which will be altogether undeniable. That's the purpose of this parable. Jesus is very explicit and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Matthew Henry says a parable has its key hanging at the door. We have to pray because if we don't, we're going to lose heart. But if we pray, we're not going to lose heart. There's no middle ground there's no other alternative. We pray or lose heart, one or the other. And so Jesus gives to us a story to help us have that heart again. Verse 2, and we see it. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This parable illustrates a person who against all odds and without the existence of any kind of evidence, she still continues to beseech and ask and bother, and in the end, she gets what her heart longs for, which is justice. This is a portrait of persistent prayer from the one who does not lose heart, even from a judge who doesn't care about her. And as the story is being told, you wouldn't think that this would ever actually be the case. In the first century, if we wanted to portray the weakest, most helpless, uh, most defenseless person, orphan or widow, pick one. And if we want to portray someone who is unyielding, corrupt, hardened, immovable, we have it right here, a desensitized judge who doesn't fear God nor respect people. And it would be one thing if the judge didn't know he was like this, but he does know that he's like this. This self-realization of his own character is actually part of his inner dialogue. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, he says to himself, which means not only is he like this, he knows he is like this, and he is completely all right with it. Where are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. No thank you to the both of them. And these are really the two qualities which would make someone a good judge. Um, and so this is the most wicked kind of judge you can find. And everyone listening to the beginning of this parable is thinking, this poor woman is not ever going to get justice. Why even try? But she does try anyway, even when she's rebuffed over and over again and again. And there's no evidence that her asking is actually doing anything. 
there's more evidence that her asking is actually utterly pointless and is a waste of time and breath and energy. But somehow, despite the signs and despite the discouragements, in this widow's heart, there's really only one thing that matters to her. And it consumes her. And it gives to her that persistence. And I think of the most heart-wrenching forms of injustice. Maybe this woman lost a child wrongly. Maybe she was widowed by her adversary. Maybe she's currently the victim of ongoing crime. That desire for justice skyrockets. And here we have this poor, powerless woman who even in the face of naysayers and with all the evidence stacked against her, she will not quit. You know, yesterday morning, my four-year-old daughter was asking me if she could have ice cream for breakfast while I was brushing my teeth. And I got an oral B toothbrush. I was like, bang. You know, I'm not realizing what I'm saying yes to because I can't hear anything. And when I get to the dining table, she says, can I have vanilla ice cream? And I say, no, you can have ice cream for breakfast. And she says, can I have vanilla ice cream with a wine? And I say, no, and it's a standoff. And, and, and none of the other kids are thinking, ice cream's how you start your day. Laura's right there. She's not advocating for it. There's no evidence, no sign that her requests are actually going to work. But then fast forward, about 20 persistent, tearful tries later. And my no, no, no turns into, dang, can you get your sister some ice cream for breakfast? <laughs> Nothing would make me happier at this moment than just get letting her have her ice cream. I mean, her heart was set on the one thing, and, and she wasn't going to rest until she got it, even when no one thought she would get it. The, the twist in this parable is that this poor widow, she actually does get the justice she wants. How? By unrelenting asking, by continual coming. And why does she get it? Because the judge all of a sudden turned into a good man? No. He's still as wicked as ever. She gets it because she keeps on bothering me. And the visual is as if each request from her is like a punch to his face. And he's getting beat down and pummeled by a barrage of attacks until he finally breaks. Her situation, desperate. Her power, none. She doesn't even have a lawyer, but she has one thing going for her, and that is resilience. And not losing heart because she wants the one thing more than she wants anything else. So much so that it consumes her. This is how we're supposed to long for the kingdom of God. Now imagine if she stopped asking just the one time before he broke. Imagine if after the two or three times of rejection she thought this is never going to work. Because I'm not seeing the results that I'm hoping for. Now, none of that's an option for I'm going to ask and ask and ask. I'm not going to let it up, even if the results don't fit into my timeline. She has persistence. She doesn't lose heart. She's always praying. Now, side note, how often is it for us that we think prayer doesn't work because the results aren't on our timeline? Our desire for, or for justice is quenched by simple fatigue. But verse 6, Jesus explains the parable to us. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus' argument here is simply this. Do you believe that God is better than this judge? Do you believe that God is better than this judge? Because even a wicked, heartless, cruel, indignant person grants justice to persevering petition. Do we believe that God is better than this judge or do we believe that he is not? Because if he is better than this judge, then of course God's going to respond and give his people justice. Now we know that in our heads. 
God is good. God's kind. He's loving. He's in control. He's powerful. We've seen it in the lives of so many people around us. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is an inevitability to that. But often what we know here is not what we feel here. And when we feel it here, that he's not even listening nor caring, that's when we actually begin to treat God as if he were an unjust judge. And that's when we usually stop praying, when we feel hopeless, whether in our minds we say it or in our hearts we simply just feel it. Something's wrong with my body or my friend group drama or I want to get married and there's no one for me. I want to have a family. I want a little bit more than what I have. This job is not the best for me. There's nothing else out there. My kid's so difficult. My marriage seems so hopeless and cold. And we pray and we mean it and then nothing happens. And over time, we begin to think that he doesn't care and that he doesn't even notice. Yeah, he loves people. He just doesn't really love me. And somehow our God is worse than this judge in the parable. Whether we say it or not, we begin to live like that is true. Whether we are ready to admit it so explicitly or not. When we stop praying, it's because we view our God and our situation in a certain light. And Jesus is asking the question here, do we view God like that? And we shouldn't. He's better than this judge in our parable. And even this judge gives justice. When, when Jesus asks, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? That term elect is a very crucial term for us to understand, brothers and sisters. It's a term of loving security. To be elect means to be chosen from before the foundation of the world, which means if you are a believer, before you were even born, God had set his heart on you. And with you in his heart, he sends his son to save you, to die for you, to wash your sin, to make you new, to adopt you into his own family. And all of this love is prior to you even coming into existence, which means not even one ounce of your eternal salvation rests upon your performance or your ability to behold him and love him, for this electing love is accomplished utterly outside of you. God chooses to set his love upon you and it's proven in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. And this love is a redeeming love and it's a life-giving love to the dead ones. We can't earn it any more than a dead person can do anything, Ephesians 2, and that also means that we can never lose it. All of our shortfalls, they were known before. We didn't bait and switch God. We didn't trick Jesus into loving us. Aha, you didn't know how bad I really was. This term elect means that God, knowing everything about you, including your own turning away from him, he still chose to set his love upon you. And there will be those times when you will hit a bottom and think, you know what? I don't think anyone could love me if people knew this about me. And that might be true. People might not love you. You know, there might be times where you even shock yourself and yet find right there that God, in the midst of it, already knew that and chose to love you anyway, and by his grace is changing you currently away from that. I mean, you think of guys like Peter, all proud and talking big, even though I have to die, Jesus, I will never deny you. Only to deny him, not once, not twice, but three times in front of a servant girl, big man Peter. And when Peter reflects on that, he would understand more and more this electing love of God, that he doesn't love me because I'm lovable, 
know his far, his love is far greater than that. He loves me because he is love. It is rooted in God's very own nature, and there's no information on my behalf that can undo that love of election. When we see the term elect, sometimes we just have to realize who we are in the eyes of God. And so when Jesus asks, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night, oh, of course he will. The relationship we have with God far surpasses what this widow has with this unjust judge. Justice is coming when Jesus returns. And when his kingdom comes in fullness, he is going to right every wrong. He's going to make all things new. Everything we've cried out for that is broken here, his coming is going to change all of that. But it is at the same time that Jesus does picture this church as a helpless widow in this world, and that is not by accident. And we need to understand that so that we won't be disappointed with false expectations in this life in the meantime between the first and second coming. What did Jesus preach on his Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6.20, way back when? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil. On the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leave for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You know, brothers and sisters, that the church appears as a helpless widow without power and suffering. Jesus has already told us that this will be the case. But his kingdom and power in the here and now has never been all that ostentatious anyway. Our king carried a cross, and so do we. And even when the evidence seems stacked against us, this should not dampen our faith and hope and thus persistence. Even when everything is screaming around us, lose art. We don't have a real reason to lose art. You know, I, I read these articles about the church's dwindling influence upon the West and what we need to do to change that. And it's usually followed by some system of softening Christianity's uh, more unpopular edges and, and contextualizing Jesus' words into something more palatable. And we can look around the world and see suffering believers everywhere, churches shrinking in America, persecution rising worldwide, et cetera, et cetera. I was talking, uh, I heard yesterday about a classmate of mine, he's in Haiti running a seminary. His dean of students got kidnapped, six days. Only ate three meals during the time, in addition to other acts of inhumanity, only to finally be released after a negotiated ransom has been paid. I mean, praise the Lord, he did get released, but we can be tempted to think, does God even care? The evidence that I'm seeing means to me, why even cry out? Why even pray anymore? Because the answer that I'm getting when I beseech him is not on my timeline and not what I want, but Jesus told us that this would happen. And when it does happen, we are to trust in his electing love for us, the church. We are to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. We are to trust that God is better than this wicked judge, even when it seems like he is currently so distant. I mean, this is going to be the church's experience. Listen to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. What does that mean? It means the good guys are dying. People are dying because of what they believe. There's going to be tragedy and atrocity and injustice in this life, and especially against God's people. 
The text continues. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They want justice. They want things made right. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What does that mean? This time, between this and this, there's going to be pain and suffering and death, which is going to tempt us to think God doesn't care at all if he allows his people to die on earth unless this little kingdom here is not ultimate and what is to truly come really is. And there's a time coming where even those who are martyred for loving Jesus are actually not going to regret being martyred for loving Jesus. And it can be the same for us in literal degrees. In the suffering you're currently enduring in a variety of ways due to the brokenness of this world, you can't always make sense of it at the time. But when his kingdom comes and you know more of what he knows, I think it will be the case like it is with these martyrs that you will actually not want to change anything when we see why and the ends for which he decreed everything out of love. I mean, isn't that what Romans 8 teaches us? All things for our good to make us more like Jesus. We don't know what the reason is for all of these things, but one day we will, and we wouldn't have written our lives in any other way. And, you know, we can often pray for things like healing, let's say, and that's what we're supposed to do. James 5.13, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We're supposed to pray for things like that. Don't, don't take this the wrong way. Of course we want relief from suffering. The Bible tells us to ask for it. But the Bible doesn't tell us to treat it as if this one illness or this one thing is somehow ultimate. It's not. I mean, we can just look at the 10 lepers being miraculously healed two passages ago. 10 of them healed. New skin, new everything. Only one of them, the Samaritan, returns to worship Jesus. We can be healed and perish. This body, this life is not ultimate, and we can perish physically only to rise eternally. There's a kingdom that is coming where there will be no sickness and no pain, and where Jesus himself, Revelation 21.4, Jesus will be close enough to us. Can you imagine that? To wipe away every single one of our tears from our eyes with his own hands. And the text says there, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The kingdom is coming, but it also assumes there will be tears before it. And the church, widow as we sometimes appear, and the church that we weave when we feel the pains of this broken world, we are not truly and ultimately widows when all is said and done. For our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who is bled upon the cross and defeated death in his resurrection, is going to return for his beloved soon. And we believe it with all our hearts, which is why we pray and pray with persistence primarily that he'll come back soon. That his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For every other kind of prayer is for temporary relief until what is ultimately truly arrives. When he returns, 
It's going to come in a flash. It will be speedily like lightning flashes from one side of the sky to the other. So will the Son of Man be in his day. That's the last passage, Luke 17, 24. And so we must, our mindsets and our hearts, we must be ready, unlike Lot's wife who made her home here and could not look forward as she ought, but only look backward instead. We must be confident and ready in the one who elected us to experience his love, though that might initially be filled with hardships. And so God is uh, better than this wicked judge in our text. And we're not really truly widows at all, but we are called his beloved bride, whom he elected from before the foundations of the earth with an eternal love, which will never be broken, though we suffer now. It is not always going to be the case. Now, before we move on, I want to make unnecessary clarification, and maybe it's not necessary, but just in case. Some, some of us here might have a background in charismatic theology, like I do, or health wealth theology, like what's played on TV and popular Christian books. This text is primarily about praying for the kingdom of God, in which ultimate justice will occur. This text is not about prevailing prayer, or, or name it, claim it. Or, or holding God hostage that I'm going to fast and weep and be like a four-year-old girl, give me my ice cream when I want it. This is not my kingdom come and my will be done on earth, insisting on our own desires that God move to deliver us everything we want, otherwise you don't love me. That, that's not this text. This text is not a promise that if I keep pestering him, he is going to give me everything that I want. No, this text is ultimately really about not losing heart for the kingdom of God not the kingdom of me, and therefore asking and prayerfully crying out that we want Jesus to return more than we do want anything else. We're one-track-minded like the widow in the parable. The second half of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The question hangs there. When Jesus returns... Is he going to find faith in us? Or will he find Lot's wife who lived like this is ultimate and didn't want any of that? The issue is not, is Jesus ever going to return? He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, not if the Son of Man comes. The issue is not, is Jesus really going to fulfill what he says he will fulfill? The issue is, are there going to be a people who actually believe it? And the opening of the passage, the key in the door, so to speak, always pray and do not lose heart. The conclusion of the passage, notice that the last sentence doesn't say, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find people praying on earth? He didn't say that. He says, will he find faith on earth? Why is that? Because prayer for the kingdom is faith expressed. And our lack of prayer for Jesus' return is faith not found to the degree that we long for and pray for the kingdom of God is to the degree that we actually believe in it. Prayer is believing. Prayer is the fruit of real faith, and there's perhaps no other litmus test of what we truly trust in than our own prayer lives or lack thereof. Now, that can make everyone feel guilty and kind of dog our eyes nervously around the room. You make people feel guilty, talk about prayer and evangelism, right? I don't think this is Jesus' intention, but his question does kind of hang, and it's supposed to. There, there's a searching note in the text. 
There's a searching tone in Jesus' words here, which is why the tone of the sermon is like this as well. When Jesus' return occurs, will he find faith in you? Uh, The question is not for guilt's sake. The question is for response. It's for self-evaluation. It's for reflection on what it is we're living for, what it is we're wanting most, what it is we long for, what it is we pray for, and that tells us everything we need to know about where we are at and perhaps where God is inviting us to be instead. Pray always. Don't lose heart. And the implication of Jesus' question here is that there's not going to be as much faith on earth as we think there is. Now we have this broad brushstroke. Everyone's going to be saved. And then you come to a question like this, and you think, maybe not. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, man, I'm doing all of this, and there's not going to be that much belief. What am I doing all this for? He doesn't say that. He knows there's not going to be much faith. And what does he do? I'm still going to that cross. Because he knows eyes wide open. And then he goes. Because it's a love that is indestructible. And it's a love that is inviting us to be a one-track-minded widow and long for the only thing that ultimately matters, that it might consume us. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for the grace we need because we need it, Lord. Um, We can't believe. We can't have faith like this. We can't be so desiring of your kingdom unless you give us the grace necessary to be like that. By your spirit and through your word, Would you sanctify us in the truth? Help us not to lose heart when it's so easy to do so. Make us a people of great faith. Help us long for you. Be on our tippy toes with a strained neck looking for you to return. More than we long for and want anything else, help us to believe the things we can't see and have assurance of things hoped for to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.